Michael Myers. Michael. Michael Myers. Got it. We didn't want to say anything, but I'm sure you get it all the time. People are like, Michael Myers, especially down like Halloween coming up and stuff. Oh, yeah. Never. 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 You're the one. It's a first. My damn life. (laughs) (laughs) And my first name is Jason, believe it or not. Are you shitting me? Nope. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) This is episode 242 of Bourbon Pursuit. I'm Kenny. And if you're ready for your bourbon, whiskey, and overall spirits news, it's about time we get to it. According to the U.S. Securities Regulation Charges in its 2014 and 2015 fiscal years, Diageo North America pressured distributors to buy excess inventory in order to meet internal sales targets in the face of declining markets, and now is hit with a $5 million fine from the SEC. Johnny Walker's owner Diageo failed to disclose the excess stocks to investors, creating a misleading impression that Diageo and Diageo North America were able to achieve their sales targets through normal customer demand, according to the SEC. Now, without admitting or denying the SEC's findings, Diageo has agreed to pay a $5 million penalty and agreed to cease and desist from any further violations. The SEC has accepted Diageo's offer. Lux Road Distillers is paying homage to the past by relaunching an old bourbon. The Davis County Kentucky Straight Bourbon is being released in three varieties. The mash bill is a mix of weeded bourbon and rye mash bills set to deliver a sweet and spicy taste. There will be the original, a Cabernet Sauvignon finish, and a French oak finish. Davis County Distilling Company was the first to release the bourbon, and the brand dates back to 1874 and was one of the few distilleries to survive prohibition. Maker's Mark has added more than 500 solar panels to its facility in Loretto to power its rickhouses, and it's done through a partnership with the Kentucky Utilities Company. The 560 panels will provide energy for security, lighting barrel elevators, and office spaces in the rickhouses. However, I'm curious if there's actually office space at a rickhouse. If it's true, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing because if you've been sequestered to sitting in a rickhouse every day, it might get a little bit lonely almost like Milton in his red stapler in the basement from the office space. But I guess it smells like bourbon, which is better than a basement, so you got that going for you. All right, well, back to topic. The new solar array first began producing power for Maker's Mark in early February and is expected to produce about 268,000 kilowatt hours per year. E-commerce analytics company Profitero said that online alcohol sales could explode from anywhere to seven to $15 billion in the next few years, noting that e-commerce is making an impact on just about every industry imaginable, and alcohol looks to be the next sector to be disrupted by the continued shift to digital. However, as we've been saying on this podcast time and time again, the three-tier system is slowing this down and is dating the industry. In an article by BeverageDaily.com, it looks at platforms such as Drizzly, GoPuff, and Thirsty, on how brands can catch on and partner. It also goes into detail on how these brands can differentiate themselves and not be paired next to other brands that could be either cheaper or delivered in a shorter time period. You can read more with the link to beverageaily.com in our show notes. Last week at the inaugural U.S. Distilled Spirits Conference, Mitch McConnell offered no relief with the ongoing tariff dispute for American and foreign whiskey. The European Union is a key market export for Kentucky bourbon, and it imposed 25% tariffs on U.S. whiskey in 2018 in response to U.S. tariffs that Trump enacted 
on imported steel and aluminum. Now, late last year, the U.S. slapped a 25% tariff on imports of single malt Irish and Scotch whiskey liqueurs, and that also affected global companies like Brown Foreman and Diageo that import these products to the U.S. Now, a common excuse is that the U.S. whiskey industry has just been collateral damage in Trump's trade disputes. And Chris Swanger, president and CEO of the Spirits Council, said that the industry hasn't lost hope and that the levies will be removed. And now there's even more coverage that the chief executives of the Scotch Whiskey Association and the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States are calling on the UK and US governments to urgently find a negotiated solution to unrelated trade disputes and remove all tariffs on distilled spirits. Now, have you ever wondered why does whiskey taste like whiskey? Well, when we nose and taste bourbon, we get leather, caramel, and dried fruits, but it was never made with any of that. In a new article by Lou Bryson at the Daily Beast, he explores every step of the process and how flavors are derived, with grains like rye and their spiciness character. Why using the same mash bill at two different distilleries will result in two different very whiskeys. And then there's geosmin, an organic compound formed by bacteria that's found in water and in soil and is responsible for that musty or earthy smell like some lake water, but can also be found in whiskey too. There's more talk about stills, barrels, proofing, and more, and you can read all this with a link to the Daily Beast in our show notes. For today's podcast, Michael Myers tells the story of the starting Distillery 291. He had a career in photography, and the events of 9-11 made him want to do something else. So like anything most of us want to venture into, you research and research and research. Michael actually built his very first still on a tight budget, and ended up even using some of his photography equipment in the still itself. The distillery has grown, but that original still is used as his doubler today. From these humble beginnings, his whiskey has gone off to win many different awards, and now they're expanding into more and more states. The distillery is expanding itself, and he's creating a whiskey that is Aspen Stave finished that he feels is authentic to Colorado. We're currently doing our 2020 Bourbon Pursuit audience survey, so we want to know more about you, our listeners. So if you've got 30 seconds to spare, please visit bourbonpursuit.com slash 2020 survey. And it really, it only takes 30 seconds. We appreciate the time. All right, it's showtime. Here's Fred Minnick with Above the Chalk. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. As I put the burai upon my lips for the first time, I could feel it tingling upon the bottom of my lip and the top. Once it hit my tongue, it just overwhelmed my palate with flavor, drenching down the bottom of my jawline, tingling the sides of my tongue, tingling the top of my palate, just feel, warming me all the way down. And you know what? It's not a bourbon, and it's not a rye. It's a blend of straights. It's a blend of straight rye whiskey and straight bourbon, and it is motherfucking delicious. Right now, I'm putting it as one of my contenders for Whiskeys of the Year. You can see my full review on it on my YouTube page. But this, this whiskey and all the barrel releases and all these other blends that we have seen come out in recent years from, from High West and Barrel and uh, numerous other you know, blending houses that are really doing a great job right now. They really are shaking up our traditions in American whiskey. 
You see, the term blend used to be a really dirty word in American whiskey. And it all goes back to the 1800s when Canadian blenders were infiltrating the uh, straight whiskey scene and undercutting the Kentucky bourbon distillers and putting their Canadian blends on the market. And you know what? Consumers really, really liked them. And so it begins there, and the Canadian whiskey distillers were trying to block the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. Of course, they were unsuccessful. The Canadian whiskey distillers also rise up again after Prohibition, and they actually, ironically, tried to put Bottled and Bond on their label. Now, what's interesting is that the U.S. government ended up uh, tariffing their, their whiskey to, to block them from using Bottled and Bond, so that basically stopped them from using Bottled and Bond. But at that same time, American distillers did not have a lot of stocks from their uh, leftover from Prohibition, so they actually had to use blends themselves to get their brands out onto the market. And so you would see neutral grain spirit being added to, say, uh, a four-year-old bourbon that had just been distilled a couple of, a few years ago. And that really kind of like people were like, oh, I don't really like blends, but this is all I got. And the straight bourbon distillers were just kind of reluctantly doing that, but they had to. And so you couple that, what they would later call rotgut whiskey with the, um, the, the blended whiskey from, from Canada, and you had distillers in the 1950s not even allowing the, the word blend being used in their distilling house. And that's where the words mingle and marrying were born. And for every decade after that, the Kentucky distillers especially would call out blend as a dirty word and would not let people say putting two barrels together was blending. That was mingling. And so that's where those words come from is because people were never wanted to use the word blend in Kentucky distilleries. Now, fast forward to 2020, you have a lot of new blood in the industry, a lot of new blood that does not care about old terms or old ways. They just want to put out great whiskey. And I got to tell you, some of the more exciting whiskeys that I have tasted in the past five years are blends of straight whiskeys. They are absolutely fantastic. But you will never, ever hear me say those words around the great Jimmy Russell. If you ask him, blend is still a dirty word. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, make sure you're checking out my new podcast, The Fred Minnick Show, where I interview musicians and I pair whiskeys to their palate. I'm having a blast, and coming up, I've got an American Idol winner on the show. Until next week, cheers! Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long.
And they're off for another Gift 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 from their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here in our official recording studio, which is deemed Kenny's basement. Yes. Yeah. Where we shoot everything. From whiskey <laughs> quickies, the podcast, uh, you name it. Hey, but you know, we, we're starting to get everything together. We got lights, we got cameras, we got everything happening here. So it's fun for especially people that are either watching on YouTube or on Facebook or something like that. And you want to get something different than just something audio only. You at least get a, a fancy background. Yeah. Unfortunately for our guests, when they show up, they're like, damn it, what? You're in a house? I thought it was going to be like a recording studio. There's going to be... We'll get you know, there one these, of these days. You know, one of these days. But. One of these days we'll get there. You know, we've... we've but got, it's much cooler to sell this whiskey, I'm sure. But mm -hmm. Well, we'll get the studio there one of these days and we'll get some sound panels and everything like that that makes us feel a little bit more legit. But, you know, today I'm really excited about our guests because this is a distillery that, you know, we've heard about, uh, you know, we've read about it before on Bourbon and Banter and everything like that. Um, he's even been a guest uh, with Fred Minnick on uh, his show on YouTube before. And so, so now something in common. Yeah. Been there. Yeah. Fred's the mutual connection here. All right. There we go. And then, and so being able to have him on the show, kind of talk about their story and stuff like that is, you know, pretty exciting because uh, for anybody that isn't watching on TV, he brought two uh, fine whiskeys for us to sip on here. So we got their their bourbon and their rye, which you might be hearing us sipping out throughout the show. Yes. And it's very uh, highly decorated bottle. So tons of awards. And uh, I just had it for the first time and I can see why. Um, for a distiller this young, it seems like some pretty good juice you got here. So I'm excited to hear the story and dive into how we got to this bottle so. <laughs> and, see, and see do they put stickers on all yeah. these yeah absolutely so let's go ahead and introduce our guest so today we have michael myers michael is the founding distiller and ceo of distillery 291 out of colorado springs so michael welcome to the show thank you very much glad to be here well good so you know before we you know talk about the whiskey and and the distillery let's kind of let's rewind the, the hand of time here. Kind of talk about your first introduction to bourbon or spirits or anything like that. Yeah, so the um, that's funny. The first time I drank whiskey that I remember was... Um, we always have those stories too. Yeah, <laughs> um, was I was 18 and uh, tur just turned 18 that day and went to a local bar with a friend. You must have been in Canada or something. Right? <laughs> close. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, in Georgia. In Back Georgia, in the yeah. Day, Pretty close. It was 18. Close. Uh, that all changed. But um, I went to a bar and wanted to drink a whiskey and ordered uh, Yukon Jack, which was sort of a whiskey at the time, sweet. And now it's really not. I mean, I, I think it's GNS with some 
natural Maybe, flavorings yeah. and stuff. But um, you would know better than I. I've never yeah, heard of Yukon Jack. Yeah. It's a new one on me. It's from Canada. Oh, <laughs> okay. It's gotcha. funny that you said that. Yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, it's a liqueur. Gotcha. Um, now. And so, yeah, with my friend Todd Hopkins, and we had a lot of fun and uh, drank, you know, a shot of it and woohoo. And then <laughs> we did it. it. <laughs> and then uh, probably the next time, uh, I mean, I was drinking Jack, Jack Daniels as well later. And, and then college, uh, one of my worst experiences was a Super Bowl, and I had bought some really nice Crown Royal moving up in the world mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and drank not a fifth, but maybe the three, seven, five of that throughout the Super Bowl, and just got so sick. Mm-hmm. And um, actually woke up the next morning and was like, I love whiskey. <laughs> I am going to the bar and forcing myself to drink more whiskey so that I don't have that issue where oh, I can't smell that ever again. And so I did that day I got up that afternoon, went to the bar and that first shot of whiskey was rough. Oh, I could imagine. You, Man. Didn't, even, you didn't even like try to like get a bloody or a bloody Mary to like ease your way in. Hair the no, dog. No, nope. hair the dog. And uh, it was great. And now I make it. Yeah. That's, that's one hell of a story. I, I know. Mean, that's like the most badass story I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, there's no way that I, I mean, I, I remember back in college and stuff like that. I, there was no way I'd get up after feeling hungover after a bad nah, night and be like, I'm going for his Gatorade or something, <laughs> like coconut water. I'm like, what can I do to feel better? <laughs> I mean, back then everybody was drinking like Pedialyte. They would, they would actually go and buy like children's oh, Pedialyte. I'm, I'm to, guilty of that. There you go. It doesn't work. <laughs> I, I think my time's way before Pedialyte. <laughs> yeah. We're softies. I was in Millennial. Savannah. Savannah, Georgia, they they just kept drinking. <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, yeah, definitely a different time. We're we're searching for Pedialyte, and he's like, yeah, just bring another yeah, whiskey out for us. <laughs> shoot it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so let's kind of talk about more of like your history and, and stuff like that. So uh, you were in Savannah. How long were you in Savannah? So I was in Savannah for school. I'm born and raised Georgia uh, with my summers spent in California. My mom lived out there since I was six. And, um, so I went to, uh, Talk about two different yeah, ends of the spectrum, Georgia and California, really different. Cause we raised Tennessee walking horses. So, um, oh, cool. in, in middle school, we had 11 acres inside the perimeter and then moved out to Alpharetta with 70 acres and another 80. So we had horses and cows and all kinds of stuff. And, um, I was given a camera when I was 15, my mom gave it to me and picked it up and never looked back. And so I went to Savannah College of Art and Design. Believe it or not, that's where 291 comes from for me. Um, so I, my dorm room was 291. And after I moved in there, I went to school and learned in history class that the very first photo gallery ever was Gallery 291. It was in New York in 1907. And um, so I'm like, meant to be a photographer. Mm-hmm. And that's where 291 came from, which is my brand name. And that just those three numbers just have just stuck with you for forever. Yeah, as a I was a fashion beauty photographer for over twenty seven years, and um, so like for models or clothing yeah, lines. Uh, yeah, very cool. Yeah, mainly makeup, beauty stuff, like um, Revlon, Clairol. Yeah, Estee Lauder. I only know this because my wife's a cosmetologist. <laughs> Estee Lauder, <laughs> Tiffany and Company. But I did shoot for this old house and Forbes, FYI, and. Um, what kind of camera? GQ Esquire. Leica or doing the Canon? What do you do? Um, no, I shot with a Pentax six uh, seven. Pentax, yeah. And it's a it's it looks like a um, thirty five millimeter that's on steroids, and so the negative is six millimeters by seven. So that's that's pretty big, almost a playing card, but a little smaller than that. 
you guys are speaking a different language to me. Yeah. <laughs> I've tried it, like I've dabbled in a lot of things and photography was like one of them and it lasted for like two months. And so I had a Leica though, but it's collecting dust. But nice. now I'm just like iPhone, you know, iPhone X. Right. <laughs> That's everybody asks, do you still take it's so pictures? Lazy, but and I'm like, I have an iPhone. I mean, it's, I, it's in my pocket, but it's all branded. <laughs> I mean, it's, it looks like a phone. I'll show it to you afterwards. Perfect. Yeah. I was about to say, because most people, you know, I remember when I had my first kid and, and they said like, oh, you've got to go out, you've got to buy an awesome camera. And, you know, here's your, here's your Canons, your DSLRs. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be lugging this thing around with me everywhere we go. I just don't know if I'm going to do it. But I remember I did look into it. I just never pulled the trigger on it. Yeah. Yeah. Good reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you're going to shoot, you might need it a better one, but for family stuff, it's always been best the camera in your hand or the camera in your pocket because you'll get the image it doesn't matter if it's high quality or not but Mm -hmm. you at least have the moment yeah and that's what matters i'm not gonna gonna make a poster size when i was shooting i would i'd be so focused on like getting a shot that i would forget the moment (laughs) you know not being the moment that's why i was like I'll just do it with my iPhone, but right, exactly. we're not here to talk about cameras. But no. <laughs> but no, but I want to hear a little bit more about the photography and like, because that seems like it was a, a, a pretty, I mean, 20 years as you said that you were doing that, Over right? 27, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so kind of talk about, you've got to have some, at least some pretty funny stories or something good from those days too. So I shot Angelina Jolie when she was 15. Wow. Mm-hmm. I have that picture on my Before phone Gia. as well. Was that yeah. the movie Gia? Um, and when she was 16, I shot her a couple of times. Um, some of my last clients were the Olsen twins. Nice. I shot them. Yeah. Um, shot oh, them my wife would be like line. geeking out right now. She's like an Olsen twin <laughs> fanatic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had a really great career. Um, it was still a struggle. It was, um, you know, a lot of work and living in New York, um, not easy raising a family there and, you know, being a freelancer. Mm-hmm. So... I was about to say, so like the the dynamic of photography and freelancing versus making whiskey, like what be be honest, what's more enjoyable now? <laughs> making whiskey. Um, and how I did mean, you merge the two? I I built my still out of photogravure plates. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a photogravure plate is a flat copper plate. You chemically edge an image in. You put ink on the plate. You put a piece of paper with it. Run it through a press, and you get an inked photograph. So I took those seven copper plates of different images from my life and water jet cut them, took them and rolled them through a roller so they curve and then had a guy TIG weld it together. And um, that, was, that was my original still, a 45-gallon still. I had a, a cask for the thump keg or doubler and um, I built a stripping still out of a 55-gallon um, ga- stainless drum. So you built this all yourself. I did. How do you do that? Like YouTube or something? Like- <laughs> I, I, yes. I grew up on a farm. I can build yeah, stuff. Okay. <laughs> I'm a redneck. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, my stories uh, intertwined with New York and nine 11 and, and then building the still and um, the process of distillation reminds me of the dark room. So that's where two ninety one came from for the brand name um, for me. But I, I built that still, and that still is the thump keg to my 300-gallon still that I built, had built in Colorado Springs. So these, these guys, Department of Defense contractors, and they built things like uh, titanium ball valves that's like 10 inches across for nuclear sub, you know, um, valves and, and nickel plate press, not plate, but nickel press rings 
for uh, propulsion tubes. And they're like, we like whiskey. Do you need a bigger still? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, great. Sure. And so gave them my plans and they built a 300 gallon still that looks identical to mine. And the funny thing was there's a little bit of pressure in a still like five pounds, but not much, but they were engineers. I went to art school and they didn't believe me that it didn't need to be that thick. So they built it out of plate copper. So it, it is thick and heavy, but it's beautiful. It works really well too. So kind of talk about that because you kind of intrigued me right there because I remember reading a little bit something about uh, 9-11 and that happening and you couldn't get back to your apartment or something like that and you kind of just had to up move the family for a little bit. Kind of talk about that time. Yeah, so uh, 9-11. Um, we lived three blocks from World Trade Center. We uh, lived on the corner of Warren and Westside Highway and I was on Greenwich and Duane with my son on my shoulders when the first plane flew over. My older son, so they were four and five. My oldest son was uh, in, in our building in PS 89, which is on the second floor. We lived on the 25th floor and we had just dropped him off. My wife and I and my son walk into his class or his school. And that's when the first plane flew over. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, saw everything that day. Um, it, it was a crazy day, needless to say. Spent the night on North Moor. Um, and then with seven families and then, uh, couldn't get back in our apartment, went to long Island, long story short, uh, moved to Colorado for about nine months. I commuted, moved back to New York, um, was there a couple of years and it wasn't good for my family. So I said, we'd move back. You're still doing photography at this time. Yeah. Gotcha. Still doing photography. And, um, so we moved back and I commuted another four years full time and then was just trying to figure out something else to do and still, like wrote some television, uh, worked on some movie stuff, and just nothing really panning out. And I shot a Vanity Fair job uh, in New York in August 2010. And on the way home, read an article about uh, the guy that created Sailor Jerry and Hendrix Jen. Mm -hmm. And he you know, created an idea and branded it and all that. Somebody else made the juice for him. And um, I came back thinking, wow, I could brand a whiskey, you know, and and... Talked to a friend of mine, Mike Bristol, Bristol Brewing, and he said, get your license and I'll try and help. And so, um, and then somebody else said, why don't you try and make it? Because you can always hire somebody if you can't. And I'm like, they make it in the woods of Georgia. It can't be that hard. <laughs> and um, so I decided to build my still, moved into 300 square feet, uh, got my DSP, distilled spirit plant permit in uh, April. With I, I got it in four weeks from when I applied, uh, which is amazing time. Dang, that's fast. Yeah. I was about to say, Everybody it takes us forever to get anything. TTP doesn't move that fast anymore. <laughs> no. No. Um, and so I was in 300 square feet. I could make 60 gallons a month um, of finished whiskey. That was working my butt off. That was, you know, 17 hour days, seven days a week. Wow. For Talk about gallons, those like yeah. first uh, attempts at making whiskey. What's it? Like, what do you do going into, like, are you reading a manual or how do you, like, are you just like going off like old travel knowledge or what, what do you do? That uh, or, yeah, he's got a, he's got a landline to somebody with some, some overalls on be like, yeah. oh, you got to tweak, you got to move this. Yeah. So I'd never brewed beer and I'd never distilled until I started this. And my first distillation, true finished distillation was September 11th, 2011. Uh, my still, the guy TIG welding it together, finished it after it took him all summer to get started on it finished it September 9th. And so I waited for that to remake that anniversary. And um, yeah, during that time I read YouTube, 
blogged everything I could about how you make whiskey. And, and it is funny. The one thing that I do say is I watched popcorn Sutton's documentary, the original one. And in there, there's a point where he talks about taking a, he takes a stick and the worms there and he puts the stick in the end of it and lets it balance. And he says, if the whiskey is thicker than the stick coming off, it's fighting whiskey. So from that, I learned you need to run it really slow to make really good whiskey. And there's uh, other things that I learned, books I read, things. And I love to cook and I love the dark room. And so I really feel that was like my home brewing experience, um, putting those two things together to get to make whiskey. So um, are there any other like outsiders or consultants that you leaned on to kind of pick their brains or kind of guide you along? Or is it totally just you? Totally me. That's cool. How did you know you weren't going to like blow up the place <laughs> or like, you know, just, That's I don't know, you know, there's a lot of pressure. Well, I know you said there's only like five pounds of pressure, but those yeah. things run hot. It <laughs> seems like a lot of bad can happen. Um, I knew that it was an open system. So as long as you don't plug the system, um, you're good. And, and as long as you keep cooling the steam coming off the still, you're okay. But if that water stops, uh, that can be a problem. Yeah, there was one point where that happened for me, and it was a mess. And um, it, I think there was a room full of 160 proof steam all wrapped around me, and I was just like, "Okay, let's calm down, <laughs> slow this down." Yeah. And um, I just I I read a lot. I paid attention to what how it was supposed to work, and and did it that way. The funny thing is, is I steam heated everything, so. I put a steam coil in my mash tun that also was my stripping still with a different top on it and a column. And then my finish still had a steam coil in it. And um, I bought a home steam unit for a steam shower. And I first <laughs> time I hit the button, it came on. It was all hooked up. I thought you were going to say they were like clothes from when you, when you photograph <laughs> right, people. Like steam and clothes. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and so I uh, hit the button, went to take notes for a little bit. About an hour later, the it turned off, went thump, and I'm like, what? Walked over there, looked at everything. It was heat, hot, and pushed the button. It came back on. I'm like, great. Literally an hour later, it cut off again. And I was like, damn, it's a home steam unit. It's got an automatic off on it. Mm. So literally for the next two and a half years, every run from um, finish run, stripping to mashing in, I had to reset that button every 45 minutes. Oh gosh. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it sounds terrible. Oh, honest. I know. Terrible. <laughs> so I'd run home, cook dinner. But it's like the, the great bootstrapping story. Like yeah. somebody is just like going in and just giving it their all and like figuring it out. I don't know. It's pretty cool. That's right. And I'd go home, cook dinner, come back, push the button, go home, eat dinner. I'd go to a liquor store and make a sale, come back, push the button, go back to another store. Uh, Do you just have an alarm on your phone every four minutes? Reset steamer. Reset steamer. I know 45 minutes pretty, <laughs> yeah. pretty good now. <laughs> Somebody goes up, how long it take there? 45 minutes. Don't worry, I got that. I got that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, it, is a, it is an impressive story of being able to go and learn and actually build it yourself. You know, it's like, it's like most of the people that, you know, you say like, oh, you want to write a book on something? Well, you, if, you're, if you want to learn something, write, write the book on it or do whatever it is to actually learn how to do it from the inside out. And, you know, you could go to Moonshine You and you could learn and look and be able to like look at it. But I mean, you, you really like built the pieces that actually made this all together. 
I did. And, and Moonshine U wasn't around at that time, and there wasn't a lot. It was mainly... Would you have gone if it was, or would you just done it yourself? That's an interesting question. I probably wouldn't have. Um, so when I went to buy a still, that's why I built my own. Uh, Vendome uh, had a 55-gallon or 50-gallon still that was like $50,000. I'm like, I don't have that money. I've never <laughs> made this stuff. How? What? So I, um, I decided to build my own. So the, probably the same with um, Moonshine U. Probably would have been expensive. I wasn't sure, you know. Uh, yeah. So and just, you know, just wing it, wing it at your best. Right. I guess then talk a little bit more about, because I think one thing that's interesting here was you were talking about your copper plates that you, that you, you took. And then, uh, if I understood correctly, you said you, you rolled it out thin enough that you could then kind of form it and build your still. So didn't roll it out. It, it was fairly thin copper. Um, it is thin copper. I mean, it's, it's rigid. Um, but you roll it just to curve it, to put the curve in it. So, um, that's why you roll it, not, not squeezing the copper out. Um, but the etchings are still on the still. You can see them um, when you go and take a tour. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty amazing. Um, but, yeah, I just um, researched. It, not everybody can TIG weld copper. And I found a man that was an amazing welder, um, another DOD guy that could, could TIG weld mm -hmm. copper and did a really nice job with it. So. And talk about the design a little bit, because I know we've had we've had Vendome on the show before, and you know they they talk about all the crazy designs. And you go, you I mean you go to anywhere, like and you see the different still boxes, you see the different ways that people are putting it. I mean, it could be a spatial issue, it could be a bunch of different ways. But you know, unless you're doing a copper pot still, everybody or it's a column still, but everybody's is a little bit different, a little bit unique. So kind of talk about how you came to the design of what yours was going to be. So um, mine's a copper pot still. There's no uh, plates in it at all. Um, the only sort of plate is the thump keg. So that kind of works as a, what plates do in a still. Um, and that design I found on the web, somebody had built one and I was like, that's really cool. And I designed it more how I needed it. But, um, the, the design of the still, there's a secret behind that. Um, I figured it out. Um, I'm a visual person and I just, I found a few stills that I liked and came up with a concept and an idea and how, what the sizes should be and um, drew it out. Mm -hmm. So I had in high school, I had 11 quarters of mechanical drafting. So I'm not great at it now because it's, that's a long time ago, but um, I can draw. Is that like AutoCAD or before it was AutoCAD? Oh, yeah. This <laughs> is like pencil and paper. Pencil and paper, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With a T-square. Yeah, exactly. With a. Maybe a compass. Compass. Or <laughs> exactly. Retractor. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what I did. I drew it out. I bought a drawing board, which is a piece of soft wood, thick, you know, board. And I bought paper and drew it out. I have, I still have those drawings of it. I actually drew a, a limbic still first and it's a really beautiful drawing but i never went that direction i went with the the uh, pot still so how much you said vendum was fifty thousand. how much was your homemade still or thirty five hundred dollars wow big cost savings <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little bit. i sourced all the parts i you know i sourced all of it to, uh, that's not with my time in it or anything like that but sure yeah Where'd you get all the parts, like Craigslist? Or? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. No, uh, um, Granger, actually. Oh, okay. They have I, a I lot of, stuff from Granger. They have a lot they of good do. parts on there. They have more stuff than you'll ever know. Yeah. Like, you're like, do you have this? And I'm like, yeah, I was, no. And I'm like, what? You all have that too? So, yeah. Um, 
Craigslist would have been a better story, though. I know. <laughs> right? I, in search of, you know, this. In search of a doubler. Misconnection. Where's my doubler? <laughs> yeah. So I guess, um, you know, so we're talking right now about making your still and, and making white dog. And, and kind of talk about what was that next progression. Oh, so he's showing us the, the picture of it right now. So, yeah, that's uh, it, it is. It's an exact replica of, of, your, of your original. It's really cool. Oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. So making White Dog here at the very beginning. So were you, were you thinking like, okay, like I'm going to make whiskey. I'm going to make bourbon. Or was it just like, what, what was the kind of like your end goal that you kind of had in mind? So uh, I, I set out 291 Colorado whiskey. I set out to make a Western whiskey. A whiskey that you would uh, walk into a bar in a Western, ask for, you know, whiskey, walk up to the bartender. What and defines he, a Western whiskey for you? Um, so mine is a Colorado whiskey, and it's big, bold, and beautiful, like the state of Colorado. Okay. So, um, and they'd slam the bottle down, and it'd be 291, and, you know, you get to drink it. <laughs> and then you have a duel afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and... Uh, so I love rye whiskey. Um, before I made my own, Thomas Handy was my favorite. So both these, my rye and my bourbon, are my original recipes. The bourbon has changed slightly. Um, it's 80% corn, 19% malt rye, 1% malt barley. It started out 80-20 uh, malt rye. And that's because Mike Bristol had a bag of corn, 50-pound bag of corn, and it was over a weekend I wanted to mash in. So um, I went to the home brew shop and bought I was looking for rye. They only had rye malt. I'm like, great. I need the malt to convert. So um, I, I did that, mashed in and ran that. I ran that on a very small, I stripped it and then ran it on a very small Olympic still. And um, that was truly my first distillation ever. And then the next distillation, and I have all these notes written down with the dates on it and everything. Like the next captain's log. Yeah. Well, one. you have to yeah. for the TTB, you have to log, you know, mm-hmm. and I didn't, I didn't have any money. I wasn't doing any, um, you know, computer stuff. So I was handwriting notes in the notebook and, um, they're funny to go through because I talk about, you know, what I'm doing distillation, but I also talk about my son's running cross country that day or an event I was going to, or what was going on in my life throughout these days Mm -hmm. so it's kind of cool to look back it's all chicken scratch scribbled (laughs) scratched out spellings wrong you know all that good stuff (laughs) we need to translate today like why the fuck is this steamer resetting again (laughs) what the hell is wrong with this mash yeah or oh that smells like throw up that is not good yeah (laughs) but that is cool because you can always look back on that and be like this is where i started and always kind of bring you back to that that is awesome yeah and we go back to it actually um there's another mash in there that uh is a special release comes out uh usually in october it's called bad guy and um that was my third recipe and we we went back a a couple of years ago because it the newer bad guy wasn't tasting the same as the old bad guy. And, and so we went back and reread the recipe and the directions. And it was Why great the name to have bad that. guy? Um, bad guy came from, so I did a, a single barrel for a restaurant. And um, I had done this mash to try. I hadn't experimented, so I was going to experiment. And bad guy's a four grain weeded bourbon. And when it came off the still, I was like, that is really good, white dog. I mean was sweet amazing and um i put it in a in a tank and was waiting and was supposed to have already mashed in for this other one for the restaurant 
and I got behind and I needed the cash. And so I was like, you know, I got that, that one in the, in the tank over there. I'll just sell it. So I called him, said, come hammer the bong. It's done. Poured it in there, hammered the bong. He was talking to his son on the phone who was like four. And he's like, what should I call it? And his son goes, bad guy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, damn. And um, so he, he, a year later, when the whiskey was coming out of the barrel, um, I'm like, what are we going to name it? And he goes, I don't know. Um, and, I'm, and I had written on the barrel, bad guy, so I didn't forget. And I'm like, you got to call it bad guy. We got to call it bad guy. And he's like, no, I don't know. And then I talked him into it finally. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's why it's bad guy bourbon, 291 bad guy bourbon. Very cool. Four grain weeded bourbon. You have a lot of cool stories. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just sit back and listen. I know. (laughs) Just keep talking. I'll shut up. (laughs) I mean, kind of talk about that a little bit as as you were, uh, you know, how much are you producing and what kind of, you know, at that time, like what kind of barrels are you putting them in? Like kind of talk about that process too. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. How much are you producing and what kind of, you know, at that time, like what kind of barrels are you putting them in? Like kind of talk about that process too. So um, the barrel mill, uh, I found them online somehow, and they were fairly new out of Avon, Minnesota. And so I called them. They would FedEx me a barrel. So I'm like, that works. You know, everybody else wanted to sell you a pallet. I'm like, yeah, buy a pallet. Um, There's a funny story about pallet too. Um, And so I just bought a barrel and would fill it up. And and I had a few barrels in that 300 square foot space. And I'd harvest it and hand bottle it, hand label it, and go out and sell it. So, so. The, the very beginning here, kind of talk about what you're, because I remember you said you were doing, would you say 50? 60. 60 gallons in a week, right? Is what a month. A month. A month. A month. And that took, that took, you know, six. So my fermentation tanks were 55 gallon Pepsi, you know, plastic drums with the top cut off. And so it would take um, 
I'd mash in six. So I could do two mashes in a day. So that's three days. I could strip two in a day. So that's three days of stripping. And it would yield about 35, 40 gallons of low wines mm-hmm. and at 35% or so. And then I'd finish run it and it would, um, I'd end up with like 15 gallons. Mm-hmm. And so in a, you know, in a month period, I had 60 gallons to put in barrels. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, were you, I mean, talk about it. Like, cause we talked to, we talked to big boys, right. And they're pumping out that yeah. in 20 minutes, right. Uh, I mean, in, in, in a minute. In a minute. <laughs> yeah. And, and so kind of talk about, you know, like, you know, where, where did you kind of see yourself? Like, were you like, this is awesome. Like, I'm, this is fun. I'm having fun with this. Or were you like, I'm in, I'm in over my head. Like kind of talk about what was going through your mind at that time. It was, it was amazing. Um, so when it first came off the still and I tasted it and I had a friend that was a bartender, phenomenal bartender, Nate Wyndham, and he would taste it. And he's like, damn, that's really good white dog. And so he had a couple of cocktails that he was using some white dog that was on the, on the shelf at the time. And he just started trading out with my rye white dog and my fresh. And um, I always say, if if it came off and it had been a grind to figure out the recipe and it wasn't that good coming off, it would have been it would have been a lot harder. But when it was that good and Nate was already making cocktails with it, it was like, all right, this is working. And I could taste it and tell. And so, but I mean, the whole process, you know, um, you've got to make those tail cuts, and that's that's the art of distillation. And I didn't know anything. And so that was a, made me nervous. You know, what, what are you going to do? How are you going <laughs> to do this? And so um, in my process as a photographer solving problems, you know, the, the head cut is easy. It's a percentage or you can taste the difference really quickly. It also drops in proof quite a bit um, at, at head cut. And then you've got ethanol coming off. And then tail, it's like, where do you stop as a distiller, the art of distilling where do you stop? And so when it started dropping in proof, I, I decided to take, you know, a quart mason jar and, and collect it every 10 proof and then go back. You know, I had the main amount of the ethanol, but here I had tails coming off and I just decided, started tasting them and deciding where, how much I would put back into, you know, the ethanol that had already come off. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's how I figured out my cut. Yeah. And um, we well, got to make sure you figure out the cuts because all that shit make you go blind if you get it wrong. I mean, well, that's the that's the head cut. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay. <laughs> that's acetone, methanol, and all that. That comes off first. Those are high uh, high alcohols that have a low boiling point. Mm-hmm. So were you uh, like uh, cash flow on this with your photography photographing what the photography? <laughs> your you've only had one pour, right? I know. Get I'm it out. To spit it out. Get it out. Your photography photography career was it <laughs> paying for uh your gosh why can't i say that photography career it, i just did it <laughs> I, I know. it's this photography West, western career. whiskey man yeah. i used to no i'm kidding <laughs> so was your photography career was this kind of fueling this baby or were you just like out on your you know on your own trying to make this work i uh no my photography was not um i did do a, a design job for a for a charity, um, they were trying to save uh, the hospital from being sold to a large corporation. And so they had this whole campaign they wanted. And so I designed and, and did commercials and did all kinds of stuff for it. So it paid me really well. So I used that money to start 291. Gotcha. 
And um, to go back to the original distillation and all that, you know, when I started making 291, I wanted it to be Colorado and kind of branded. And so it, we haven't talked about that, but it's um, 291 Colorado bourbon or 291 Colorado rye whiskey. And it's Aspen stave finished. So um, I take toasted pieces of Aspen, pop the bung on the barrel, put the Aspen in the oak barrel. And for the last few weeks, we finish it on Aspen. Aspens Be- are the trees that uh, okay, they turn say. yellow, but they don't lose their leaves. Is that right? <laughs> no, they, they lose their <laughs> leaves. They do lose their leaves. Yeah. Okay. They turn yellow and red. They're really beautiful. Yeah. And the bark's they- white. The only Aspen reference I know is going to be the Dumb and Dumber. Oh, yeah. 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 Aspen. So I'm talking about a city called Aspen. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the way I figured that out was I wanted Aspen on the label. I I took some Aspen, toasted it, put it in a mason jar with some Finnish um, whiskey, and um, was riding to Boulder with a friend that was about a two-hour drive, and I just shook the the mason jar. And when I got up to Boulder, I had some of the original and then what it tasted like on Aspen. And I'm like, that's good. And so that's where mm-hmm. that came from. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. What's, what is it about Aspen that's different from Oak that kind of gives it some different? It's um, there. So for me, it, it, it pushes caramel notes to maple and it adds a little spice to it and a little smoke. This rye has a beautiful color on it, by the way, too. I need to try the rye. Yeah. Pour yourself some of the rye. The, the, the nose on the rye is really good. I love it. So it's 101.7 proof. Mm-hmm. The bourbon was 100 proof. And how long are you, uh, you aging these and what type and how big are the containers and everything oh, wow. like that? Let's, 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 get, let's get into it for That's the whiskey geeks out there. It's all a secret? <laughs> yep. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, man. I guess we got to go on a tour to find yeah, out. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so it's American oak barrels, deep charred. Mm-hmm. We age a year to two years um, right now. You know, the rye that you're talking about in 2018 won World's Best Rye from Whiskey Magazine. It also won America's Best in 2016 from uh, World uh, Whiskey Magazine. And then um, that's an interesting thing that uh, in that 300 square foot space, my barrel number two of this rye got 94 points from Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible. Congratulations. Thank you. And, um, and, we have seven liquid golds from Jim Murray uh, with six different recipes. Mm-hmm. So it's been. So Jim Murray's a fan of you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a fan of his. He's great. His tasting notes are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've ever read any of them. We haven't had him on no. the show yet. We're, we'll, we'll get him on. We'll get him They're on. probably much more elaborate than ours. I'm like, tastes like uh, <laughs> s'mores or. <laughs> they're, they're really. <laughs> or uh, or uh, I always try to relate them to a breakfast cereal, you know, like Cocoa Crisp or. Yeah. <laughs> Count Chocula. I just well, noticed that you do you do a lot of cereals, don't you? I know I get a lot of cereal. Like right. when you're a kid, right. you get a lot of those cereal notes with it with the milk. One like of that. our bourbons has a um, it's HR or high rye. It has a cherry fun dip. Oh Ooh, wow! To it, fun dip. it's this. It's this. I'm gonna use that one now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fun dips that powdery. <laughs> My kids. Just so got it's like dry, <laughs> and so the high proof of it make it's cherry, but it dries out just like fun dip it's yeah. really funny um so there yeah you can find my my distiller eric jet had one whiskey and he's like you know it's like that 
that dusty old poncho and the team was like what are what? you talking about and um what were and, you on at that time and, and <laughs> it's not, like not. your grandma's attic you know there is a note sometimes of dryness yeah you know the musty old basement gets or around, you know, musty old isn't good but yeah dusty's not so bad mm-hmm. um because it's the dryness part i have it. tasted like like you talk about cherry fun dip like grape kool-aids like you know right. the the manufactured grape flavors you know like I, I get yeah, that they come out a lot. Yeah, a lot. Talk about today's operation. So, so you're 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 the founding distiller. You're not, it sounds like you're not distilling anymore. But kind of talk a little bit more about you know what the size of the operation is, the people. Uh, if you're still doing uh, you know sixty gallons in a month, or if you're if you're if you've progressed. So kind of talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be here if I didn't progress. Um, we got so, the only bottles. From this exactly. Time. <laughs> well, that was the interesting thing. Was like 2016 when I sent Whiskey Magazine. They needed two bottles, and I had to pay money. And and I was like, I I don't have that much whiskey. So that's why it took me a while to start putting in oh, we for know, yeah. awards. But um, all my tanks, the 55-gallon drums, the, the fermentation tanks, my stripping still, I mean, yeah, 55-gallon drums, have all moved up to 1,500 gallons, including the stripping still. Um, I showed you that picture. has the 300-gallon finish still in it. All the whiskey still goes across the original still as the thump keg. We distill twice a week, and we're producing... Uh, about 240 finished gallons a week right now. Um, we're working on some barrel financing to at the first of the year that we'll move up to producing five days a week. Mm-hmm. And we are uh, right now, I've been in 7,500 square feet for six years. Wow, that's hard to believe. Um, and we are moving within a year, we will be in uh, a campus with. Um, 28,000 square feet, probably wow. four different buildings. Mm-hmm. One will be a distillation building. The other one will be fermentation, um, barrel storage, and then tasting room. Mm-hmm. So you just, you're looking at like, just let's keep investing into this, growing it bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. I mean, we did 2,609 liter cases last year um, sold and, and we've produced the year before 2,600 nine liter cases. Mm-hmm. So we're selling everything we make. Um, 95% of it is in Colorado. Uh, we just opened Kentucky uh, this week. Um, we're in 27 Kroger stores mm-hmm. in Kentucky and it's going really well. Um, but we could sell more if we had it and that's what we're working on. But um, we still, the quality, we, we're, it does not come out of the barrel until it's ready. What's yeah. it like coming to Kentucky? Is it like, Coming to Kentucky to play basketball, you know, like we got to face the Wildcats when you're coming to Kentucky, you know, and face all the big boys in bourbon. Is that daunting or are you like, bring it on? Um, <laughs> it, I don't know that it's daunting. Um, the community is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the great thing. Um, everybody I meet is v- incredibly helpful. Um, even Fred Minnick, he's, he's the one that helped Kroger. So I'm by introducing me to to the buyer and um you know now that I think about it I've, this ride tasted very familiar and I had it at Fred's office he goes this is the next big distillery oh <laughs> and, nice because the smokiness of it re- reminds me of when I had it so right. anyway side note <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um it's been amazing I mean at the uh one of the awards thing um Jeff Arnett won master distiller Jack Daniels master distiller. 
And I went up and talked to him because you want to say hello, you know, oh my God. And um, he was the nicest man and we got talking and he's from Jackson, Tennessee, where my brother lives, that's a surgeon. And uh, we had a family farm in Shelbyville, which is which Flat Creek, Tennessee, which was seven miles from Jack Daniels, seven miles to Dickel. So I told him that and we really hit it off. And, and then my brother was doing a charity, didn't know I had met Jeff, but knew he was from Jackson and reached out to him to do a tasting at the charity. And because he was from Jackson, he did it. And my brother called me and said, you know, that's who's coming. And I was like, oh, I just met him. And he's like, wow. And so I went with my brother's friend, our partner that had a, a twin prop plane and we flew from Jackson to Tullahoma and picked up Jeff. And literally when I walked off the plane, he was walking up on the tarmac and he's like, Hey Michael, how's it going? <laughs> and I, I mean, I'd met him once in person, but he knew who I was and was, it, it was amazing. And, uh, we've become friends. I text him all the time. I'm going to go see him tomorrow. Um, the first time I went to Jack, he, you know, shortly after that charity, he said, come down, I'll show you around. And, and he put me in his personal truck and he said, what do you want to see? He said, whatever you want to see, I'll show you anything. And that's amazing. I mean, yeah. and, and well, there's again, gotta be respect because Jeff's had everything. He's awesome master, but you got a company like Jack Daniels. You have every resource imaginable to you, whereas you kind of had no resources and made it work. So there's gotta be something that you both can learn from each other. I, I, yes. And he's alluded to that and, and is very respectful that I, I make a Colorado whiskey and, and you know, that's the thing. I love Kentucky bourbon. I love Tennessee whiskey. I love all kinds of scotch, Irish whiskey, but I'm not looking to make a Kentucky bourbon in Colorado. My, my bourbon, my whiskey, my rye are to be different, big, bold, beautiful. beautiful. Uh, yep. my, my brand, uh, there's a few names, but one's Rugged, Refined, Rebellious. We also hard made the Colorado way. And then another tagline is, uh, uh, write it like you stole it, drink it like you own it. <laughs> nice. I like it. And nice. so, um, you know, that's what I, I set out to do this. And, and it's been amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's it's had a pretty warm reception, right? And congratulations for coming to Kentucky. Uh, you know, this is it's a it's a big step. It's no smalls feet. No, sure. it's, it's definitely <laughs> definitely. And and not only that is you know talking to you about the progression of of where it is or where it was to what it is today. It's it, everything comes with uh, with growing pains too, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, kind of talk about at least did you have a, a mem- specific time of of growing here that you're like okay, like. I wish what it was a, just me and the <laughs> 60 gallons. <laughs> um, so the one thing about being a photographer consistently, you have to build teams of people, especially doing fashion. So you, hair, makeup, you know, stylist, model, all that kind of stuff, location. That was helpful for me in, in growing this and finding people that could help me grow it. So I have a team of about 13 people right now. It's an amazing team. They do phenomenal work. But yeah, there were there were times, and there's still times, you know. I'm bootstrapping it, so there there's tight times with money. There's tight times with barrels not being ordered, panic, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> bottle panic, you know, things like that. When I first started, um, that was something I wanted to mention earlier about a palette to get not this bottle, but my original bottle, which is similar to this, but this one came along when I could buy 30,000 or promise I'd buy 30,000 bottles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Promised. But this one I could buy a pallet of. And my mom had given me a Cougar Ann 
at some point and and kugran is an ounce of gold and um thank you for explaining that because i was about to say i have no idea what you're talking yeah, about yeah it's a south african coin and so i was making whiskey in that 300 gallon i needed a bottle they were they give me a better price if i bought a pallet or it or to buy the bottle, I had to buy a pallet. And gold was up expensive then. And I literally took that Cougaran, cashed it in, and bought a pallet of bottles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and was able to put them in that 300 square foot space. I built, uh, I built shelves and made it where, you know, they weren't really in the way. And it was kind of crazy. But yeah. um, so there are growing pains. I mean, you know, I, the most nervous I've been that I can remember is working on this move for this, you know, 28,000 square feet. Um, it's, it's big. We, we won't renovate it and build it out beautiful with four production line facility. We're going to move in with what we have now and grow it like I did from the 300 to the 7,500 square foot that worked really well. But we have a, our model is a ramp. I mean, it's a, it's a steep curve. And so we have a lot to get done in the next four years with making whiskey. And, you know, there, there are growing pains. It, it, it is not easy. There hasn't been a day where I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to the distillery. <laughs> I give up. I'm done from day one to now. Mm-hmm. There's never, that's never crossed my mind. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. At least that means you're loving it. Yeah. yeah. It, I guess that uh, you don't have to think of are the Olsen twins that they still need me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a funny thing. Uh, I broke out a box of Polaroids. Um, so back in the day w- before digital, you were doing light tests and stuff. You used a Polaroid back on the camera. So you would take the picture, strobes go off, and you pull the Polaroid, wait a minute, and then and like pushing that button every 40, <laughs> and you'd peel it, and you'd look at light. So I have... I kept most of those Polaroids. I've got boxes of them. And I opened one up the other day and there's some just really beautiful pictures in it. Showed it to a friend and they were like, oh my God, you got to start shooting again. I'm like, I don't don't know that that's happening. But I did reach out to hairdresser friend and a couple of them at that time uh, with the Polaroids and posted on uh, Instagram with it and, and hadn't talked to them in years, 10 years. And they're like, what's up? And it was really great. Makes me want to maybe try one day and who knows, but not You should have like a reunion moment. at the distillery with like yeah, all your, a great idea. you know, all your photography clients. See there, I got a photography clients and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bring them to your distillery. Like, look what I'm doing now. Let's yeah. party. Let's party. There we go. <laughs> well, at least you can get bottle shots done on a cheap, right? You can do those. That's a funny thing. I don't shoot my bottles. Oh, really? I, you don't? I don't. I, well, can I you do ours <laughs> while you're here? I shoot them with the iPhone for like in situation, but to set them up and shoot them, I mean, I can do it, no problem, but um, I'm I'm a little too close to the product, and also it's a different frame of mind. And to get in that frame of mind, it would take me a few days or or a week mm-hmm. um, working with the bottles and stuff to to get the light, and and it's just easier to for me to pick somebody and go. I like his pictures, and I can direct what I want from there, and. Yep. So that, yeah, I, you know, you're coming from the photography background and, and, you know, we're all kind of like doing a lot of stuff with whiskey. And, and I remember I talked to somebody about doing bottle photography and I'm like, you charge what? Like to take a picture of a bottle. I mean, it's, it's something that I had no idea even existed before then. So it's, uh, it's, it's a uh, really cool that you kind of have, you can blend a lot of these worlds together and you know how to direct and stuff like that. Cause I'd be like, 
I don't know, a river in the background? Like, you tell me what looks cool. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have a, a business partner in New York, um, or we were, um, in a retouching company, uh, Russ Gunlack. And he, um, he still retouches. He's a, an amazing retoucher. And so I send him stuff all the time. I mean, funny things, but I send him bottle shots and, and I can direct him and I can, I can take a bottle, you know, if it was shot in the same light and have him put it like five bottles in one picture very easily and stuff like that. So I understand how to do that. So that's where I, you know, I can direct it and get it done on the cheap. I mean, everybody else that would cost them a ton of money. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I did, we were at a tasting and, um, there was an airplane behind me and it had a call sign number on the side of it. And it's old, you know, world war two type plane with that block number. And I took a iPhone picture of it and sent it to Russ, texted it to him and said, can you change that to 291? <laughs> and literally 30 minutes later, it came back to me on my phone and it was perfect. And I'm like, yep, there you go. Awesome. And posted it. And people were like, ah, 291? And I also did it this summer on a bull, um, the brand on a bull. Somebody, it was like 301 and I asked him to do 291 on it. And they're like, I didn't see that bull with that brand on it. It's really funny. Yeah, it's good to know people, I guess, right? Yeah. So I guess uh, kind of last question before we start wrapping this up is, you know, you've, you said 95% in Colorado, you're growing to Kentucky. I'm sure that you've got plans to even go beyond there. Kind of talk about, you know, one last thing that you want to kind of leave listeners with as they are, you know, they're, they're walking the store, they see your bottle and then maybe they hear this, like, what's one thing you want to leave them with? I, I want them to enjoy my whiskey. There's a funny thing. I, I drink my whiskey neat. Um, it's rare I drink it on the rocks. But I, I also, in the summer, or when I feel like it, I drink my bourbon with uh, Mountain Dew. I drink it, uh, my rye with lemonade. It makes the only it, person I know that does that is my dad. It makes <laughs> it's an amazing drink, and it's a nice drink, summer drink. Mm -hmm, yeah. And I want to drink bourbon. Um, I also drink... Um, I don't drink vodka Bloody Marys. I drink rye Bloody Marys, and cool. those are phenomenal. But I want somebody to try my whiskey. I want it to take them back to Western days and, and enjoy it. And it, it's an unapologetic whiskey. It's, it's a big, bold whiskey, and um, I'm really proud of it. The other thing that we didn't talk about is the cage that's on there. So when oh, I was yeah. young, there was a, the, the cork and cage, cage holds the cork in. Um, when I was young, I'd watch TBS in the morning and Saturday morning it had cartoons. And then if it rained, the later it got old movies would come on. And there was an old movie where they were transporting nitroglycerin in a wagon and they had wired all the bottles in so it wouldn't bounce. And when I started making high proof whiskey, I'm like, we got to wire the cork on. And so that's where that cage comes from. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now we know. There's a story to everything. I it love really it. Is. There is. <laughs> Even <Yeah>. my watch. <laughs> yeah. My watch is my dad's watch. And uh, every time I shake it down, it reminds me of him. Yeah. Go oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you again for coming over here, uh, coming on the show, and, and of course, sharing your whiskey with us. I think it's a, an incredible story of, of what you've built and the team that's building this and, you know, the direction it's going as well. I think everybody's pretty excited for really the future of what this is going to entail for y'all. Thank you. Same here, Kenny and Ryan. I, I'm very appreciated to be on the show. And um, yeah, I, that's, you know, we have an experimental batch called the E. Uh, we love to experiment. I love making my whiskey. Um, I love selling it. I love giving it away to people to try it. 
um, tastings and, and even people I meet, give them a bottle because they'll share it. Um, and I love that. Yeah. So I really appreciate today. Thank you guys. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you for coming. It was a true inspiration. I mean, most companies we have on here, even if they're new, they go out and get big time investments or, you know, get a lot of cash flow to back them up. And like to hear somebody just go source parts from Craigslist, not kidding, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, just pretty close, you know, just wanting to do something and find a way to like make it happen is like, it's so inspiring to me. I think it's a very cool story and I'm excited for the brand. It's gosh, the rise. Awesome. I love it's it. Really good. Thank you. Like, Thank so you so good. much. But uh, yeah, I, it's, I'm, it was a pleasure talking to you and hearing all your stories. Um, for sure. Glad to be a part of it. Absolutely. And so make sure you follow Distillery 291 on all the social medias. Uh, give a shout out as well as your address where people can go and visit. Uh, 1647 South Tejon Street, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And our website is 291coloradowhiskey.com or distillery291.com. There we go. There Perfect. We go. So make sure you follow them, follow us, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you like the show, want to support the show, help us on patreon.com. And if you like it and you don't want to help support on Patreon, just write a review. We love reviews. We like hearing from everybody else as well. So Ryan, go ahead and close it out for us. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks Mike for coming. Uh, appreciate all the whiskey and all the fun stories, but yeah, if uh, you have any show suggestions, feedback, we love hearing from our listeners because this is who we do it for and we want to bring you content that you actually want to hear. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, hit us up and let us know what you want to hear and we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.